right. Hey, can you just uh, find someone next to you and say, Christmas is coming. Can you say that? Christmas is coming. It is coming. All right. And then if you could do one other uh, Christmassy thing, can you think about this for just a couple seconds? And then can you for the next maybe 10 seconds, look to the person next to you and tell them your favorite Christmas song. Okay, this is my favorite Christmas song. Think about it for five seconds and then take five to ten seconds and just share that with each other. All right, go. All right, well, um, from where I'm standing, uh, I, I heard a bunch of things, but I, I don't really know exactly what I heard, but I'm sure you have your favorite Christmas songs. This is the season. You've been hearing it. Uh, I don't know how long you've been hearing it, uh, for maybe up to a month, but definitely uh, for the past couple weeks, we've been hearing songs of Christmas on the radio, and uh, when you go to Target or Walmart or wherever it is you go, wherever they have music, you're probably hearing uh, Christmas music. You can tell uh, the heartbeat of a culture, of a nation, of a people, of a time by listening to the music of that time. Right? You, their values are expressed in their music. I think uh, when, I was, when I was growing up, the Christmas music that I heard typically, and I would say today, uh, this, is, this is my uh, unscientific but just kind of uh, my anecdotal experiential thought. Uh, I think that in our day here in 2019, there are three kinds of Christmas songs that you hear during this season. One of them is the kind of songs that we grew up, I grew up hearing uh, when I was a kid. They're songs that are Christmas songs, but they lead us into the worship of the Christ child. They lead us into the worship of God. Songs like we sang, um, things like, Away in a manger, no crib for a bed, the little Lord Jesus lays down his sweet head. Or songs like Joy to the World, which talk about the hope of the coming of Christ. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. There are Christmas songs that lead us into worship. That's, when I was growing up, those are the songs that defined Christmas for me. The second kind of songs are, are kind of in the middle. They're not afraid to talk about Christmas, but they don't, talk, they don't go as far as to talk about uh, the meaning of Christmas. So there are songs that say, Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. There's the Spanish version of it that says, Feliz Navidad, Prospero Año y Felicidad. That says, we want to wish you a Merry Christmas and a happy new year, something to that effect. It talks about Christmas, but it doesn't really talk about Jesus as the reason for celebrating. And then there's a third category, and maybe this is uh, in, in a politically correct climate. These are the songs that you know are Christmas songs because they only come out during Christmas time, but they don't mention Jesus and they don't mention Christmas. Songs like uh, Frosty the Snowman. Right? You don't sing that in the summertime, obviously, because it's talking about snow, but you know these are Christmas Song, Santa Claus is coming to town, or um, All I Want for Christmas is You, right? It's not about Jesus. They're Christmassy songs, but they don't really uh, engage in the full meaning of Christmas. I think as I think about these things, I realize that there is a constant fight for the supremacy of Christ in our hearts during Christmas, during the rest of the world, but certainly during the rest of the year, but certainly during this Christmas season. When I was growing up, um, I would say to my friends as I kind of did a little bit of, of, of word puzzling, I said, hey, you know what? Santa Claus is an invention of the devil. Right? He, 
Santa Claus came from Satan because there's no other who else but Satan would want someone else to take our minds off of Jesus during Jesus' birthday. It's Santa Claus comes from, and then I said, if you rearrange the letters to Santa, you could spell Satan. And so I was like telling people, this is a conspiracy of the devil that Santa Claus is bad. And then someone told me, hey, in Spanish, Santa means holy. And so that kind of uh, conspiracy theory went out the window. But whether it's Satan, whether it's Santa, whatever it is, there are a lot of things that could potentially pull our hearts away from worshiping Jesus this Christmas. There's a lot of stuff. It can be things as, as innocuous as I, my kids have Christmas presentations and I got to go to this one, I got to go to that one, I got to go to this school, I got to go to that school, got to go to this church event, I got to go to this house church gathering, this youth gathering, this thing at school, this thing at work, and this thing in my neighborhood, all of these different things that are pulling us away. Uh, there's long lines in the shopping malls, there's long lines to park, all these places, and when you go online shopping, oh my gosh, they won't take my credit card, all of these stressors that come up. If it's not Satan, it's not Santa, something Something rises up to distract us from worshiping Jesus during this Christmas season. So what we did last year is we went through this thing called the Advent Conspiracy, where we entered into this, this, this fourfold, uh, fourfold uh, project where we said, hey, let's make this our aim this Christmas. Let's try to worship fully. Because if we worship Jesus well, then everything else is going to fall into place. The second thing we said is, let's not be so caught up in the consumer, in the religion of consumerism. Let's try to spend less in order that we might actually give more. Okay, not thinking that we can buy the ultimate perfect present and give that to someone as a show of our love, but maybe we can give more, more of our time, more of our attention, more of our love, more of something that would really show and communicate the heartbeat of Christmas. And with that money that we save, maybe we can use it, leverage it in order to love everyone, not just a couple people, but to love people who need the love of Christmas the most. This year as a way of rebelling against the status quo of how we do Christmas because you got to admit there's something wrong with the way that we do Christmas if we're constantly missing out on the heartbeat of Jesus during Christmas. There's got to be a better way to do it. And so what I want to do for the next three weeks is just engage in the Christmas story again by looking at the message of Christmas. What actually did the angel say to the people and what was the message of Christmas and how does that lead us to worship? I want to do that over the next three weeks. We're going to look at the gospel of Luke and what I want to do today is just look at the gift of Christmas and see that if you've received the gift of Christmas, it ought to be otherworldly in terms of the transformation that it can give to us and what it can do in our lives. We're going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 today, and then next week we're going to go a little bit further, and then the week after maybe we'll go a little bit further again to look into different parts of the message of Christmas. But as we do this, um, Luke chapter 2, uh, Luke was a doctor who lived about 2,000 years ago, and in real life, history, time, space, he lived, and he wrote this as part of the biographical accounts of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. This is the word of God for the people of God, uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So what Luke is immediately doing is placing it in its historical context. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph, he was the, uh, 
husband of Mary, who was a mother of Jesus. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths. It doesn't say clothes, it's cloths, and placed him in a manger, not a crib, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's Christ, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. This is God's word. Uh, Beautiful, uh, beautiful passage of history that shapes our souls. What I want to do is, like I said, I want to just talk about the message of Christmas over the next three weeks, and I want to talk today about the message that's found in the gift that God gave to us. The reason we give gifts is in honor of the ultimate gift that God gave a gift to us on Christmas. So what is that gift, and what is its significance? In order to get to that place uh, and see the good news, we have to start with the bad news, okay? So this gets, it's going to start a little bit rough, but we go from bad news to good news. This is how, uh, basically, my two thoughts, I, I've kind of jacked it from a man named Jack Miller, uh, who started the Sonship Program, and here are the two thoughts, the message of the gift. The first thing is this, Christmas says, you are in far worse shape than you could ever imagine. You are in far worse shape than you could ever imagine. Okay, it starts bad. I don't know if you've uh, been watching TV lately or if you've been on the internet or social media lately, but you've probably seen or heard about a commercial that's kind of making all the news these days. It's about the Peloton exercise bike. Anyone seen that commercial? No. Okay, okay, good, good, good. All right, so Peloton is an exercise bike, and, and you pay like two or $3,000 for it, which is ridiculous in itself. But then on top of that, you have to pay a monthly subscription fee. It's crazy. So there's this commercial. It's 30 seconds long, and this lady comes down the stairs. It's snowing outside, so presumably it's Christmas. She's got her hands over her eyes, and her daughter's leading her. And then her husband says, okay, now. And she opens her eyes, and she's like, oh, great. It's a Peloton exercise bike. And so she gets this bike, and, and the, the kind of the uproar is that, uh, first of all, she's a thin, athletic, normal-looking woman who gets an exercise bike for Christmas. And people are in an uproar about that. Oh, what is that talking about? You know, uh, body image and, and all of that stuff, which I, there's a valid point to it. But the second reason everyone is in uproar is, is a little bit more satirical, but they're saying, dude, why in the world would you get your wife an exercise bike? That's terrible. It's a great gift, mind you. It's like two or $3,000, but the gift could be amazing, but there is a subtext that comes with every gift, right? There's a message that comes attached with every gift. Gentlemen, men of God, there are certain gifts that we ought not buy our wives, and an exercise bike is one of them, okay? An exercise bike you do not get for them. Even if they ask for it, it's a trick. It's a trap. There are other gifts 
that you do not buy your wife. Okay, you do not buy them a scale. Okay, you don't buy them a scale to weigh themselves on. You don't buy them Spanx. We don't even know what Spanx are, but you don't buy that for them. You don't buy them an exercise mat. There's certain things that you don't buy no matter how good a gift is because of the message that it communicates. The message that he was communicating through the Peloton was, hey, you may think you're in pretty good shape, but you're a whole lot worse than you think, at least according to me. Wow is right. (laughs) There's bad news in the gift of that Peloton because every gift you see comes attached with a message. Now, the message that God is sending through the gift, well, what is his gift? You you see what the gift is in, in, in verse 11. Um, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. God didn't send a Peloton. He didn't send a thing. He sent a person. The person is Christ Jesus the Savior. Now, what does that mean? What is the message attached to it? Tim Keller says this is probably, uh, in order to receive this gift, it's the most... You have to humble yourself to the ultimate degree in order to receive this gift. Why? Because we don't understand this in 20, uh, 21st century parlance, but in those days, the message of a Savior had a very particular connotation that most people in those days knew. Today, if you think about it, what is a Savior? You think, well, Jesus, a spiritual Savior. That makes sense to us. Whether we've grown up in church or not, that's the language that's being used here. But in a very particular way, there was a nuance that the people in the ancient days understood. I mean, let, let's play a little game here. Say we're hanging out in Bethlehem and a cop shows up, a policeman shows up, he's like, hey, hey, Bethlehem, I've been sent to you. You might not know why he's there, but your assumption is, wow, there must have been a crime committed, right? Very simple. Depending on who is sent, you understand why he or she was sent. Uh, Another example, Uh, we're hanging out in Bethlehem, and then uh, a doctor rolls up there. He's like, hey, 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 Uh, I was sent here to Bethlehem. You would say, oh, someone must be Sick. Very good. This is, this is good. A fireman shows up in Bethlehem. A fireman shows up in Bethlehem. Hey, uh, I'm looking for this inn in Bethlehem because uh, I was sent here. You would know that there was a, or a cat stuck in a tree, right? But a fireman comes because there's a particular reason and you know why he came. When Jesus comes as the Savior, okay, he didn't say, behold, I will send you to the town of David, a professor or an economist or a teacher or a lawyer. He says, I will send a Savior. Then immediately people thought there is two things. One, there's great danger. And two, there is outside help required to get out of this great danger. Here's what he's saying. You are in far worse shape than you could ever imagine. You need a Savior because you are, who's in great danger? Uh, Here it is. Uh, He says in in verse 10, good news of great joy, that will be for all the people. In other words, all the people need a Savior because all the people are in great danger and they are powerless to do something, anything about it. Here, I remember being in, a, in, in China a few years ago, and we're, we're kind of like walking through the, this, uh, uh, this mall, and, and, and in those Chinese malls, you, you haggle for electronics and things like that, and, and we're walking by this stand, and um, they were selling uh, SD cards, memory cards for camera, 
And, and the lady's like, hey, 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 come over here. SD card, American SD cards for your camera. I don't own a camera. So I was like, I don't want it. Thank you very much. She's like, no, 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 no. Come here, come here, come here. So I said, I don't, I, I don't need it. And she said, come, just come. And she was very angry at me. So I came. And she said, how much, do you want, how much will you pay for this memory card, for your camera? I was like, I don't want it. She's like, how much will you pay? I said, nothing. She said, here. And so in order to translate the numbers from the Chinese currency into American dollars, she typed in the number 40. And she said, here, for one SD card, $40. And I said, I don't want it. And she's like, tell me. OK, OK. And she gave me the calculator. She said, tell me what you will pay for a memory card. What do you want to pay? Like I said, I didn't want it. So I typed in the, there's a button that says AC, all clear. I typed in AC so it said zero, and I gave it back to her. And she looked at it, and she's like, no! And then she got even more angry at me. She said, no, and then this, this is the progression. I remember the progression because I, 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 it's like causing nightmares when I hear it, but I remember very clearly she said, no, you are not good is what she said. And then she said, you are bad, and then she ended it by saying, you are very bad. I said, wow, you know, that escalated quite quickly from you are not good to you are very bad. And so I walked away feeling really bad about myself. But the message of Christmas is, hey, it's not just you're pretty bad and God says, here, let me give you a little bit of help. He says, you are in great danger and you are hopeless to do anything about it. When our daughter, Elise, was about, I think she was about two, she was in her car seat in our minivan, and somehow the keys were in the car, the doors got locked, and she was the only one in the car. Two years old, right? She can't do any. She, can't, she doesn't have the dexterity to undo this and to unclip it, so she's just sitting there. She doesn't know what's going on. She just knows mom and dad are outside, like, looking at her, and she's like, what's going on? And uh, I'll spare you the details to protect her parents from shame and embarrassment and prison sentences and all that stuff, but what's her, what does she need? She doesn't need someone to say, hey, Elise, let me help you to do that. She was absolutely powerless. She was in great danger in the Florida heat. She needed outside help because she was powerless to do anything. Even if we said, Elise, do this, push that button, she would have no idea. She needed a savior. And it came in the form of a, of a fireman who was like so cool and he came and he like jimmied the lock and the whole time her eyes are just locked on the face of her savior because she knows that once he helps her, she'll be reunited to her mom and her dad. What does she need? She was in great danger and she needed outside help. And so a savior came to help her. The message of the gift of Christmas is that every single one, see, here's the problem. Um, we don't think we're that bad. A lot of us don't. Right? Some of us do, right? Some of us do. We realize, yeah, I'm pretty jacked up. But maybe I can, I can explain through Ephesians 2. Here's the, here's the great danger. We have a God in heaven okay, who's perfect in holiness. That means it's not just you think of the holiest person, you look around, who's the holiest person I know? Oh, I think it's my house church shepherd. And you think about him or you think about her and just elevate her to like the hundredth degree. That's how holy God is. No, 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 no. He is otherworldly holy so that 
Even angels in heaven, when they describe him, one word holy is not enough to describe him. They say holy, 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 and all the time they're singing that song because there's no other way for them to explain the otherness, the absolute otherness of God, that he is completely different and set apart from us. He's our God, and one day, Hebrews 9.27 says, we're all going to stand before him and give a reckoning of our lives, and at that point in time, what's going to... He's saying there, there's a, a relationship that we have with God, but none of us are seeking him because none of us are righteous and none of us are, are, are understanding anything about him. We're not righteous. We're sinful. There's a great danger. Here's how Ephesians 2 says it. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That means not you were dying or you had a mortal wound or you had, uh, you, you had like limbs that were knocked off. He said you were dead. Like already in the grave, in a graveyard, we're dead. That's not like, hey, let me give you a hand to get out of there. No, we're dead. We can't lift a hand to receive the help that we need. We're gone. There's nothing there. We're dead in our transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In other words, there's a world in which we live that is pounding you and stepping on your dead self already, and then there's an enemy who's further pushing you down into the ways of this world, the, uh, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That is who we are. But a lot of times we think, you know what, I'm not so bad. I give money to charity. I help a lot of poor people. In fact, I give 20% of my income to the United Way. I'm not, a, I'm not that bad. He says, a dead person, a dead person, giving 20%, doing all of these good things. How much more help do you need than if a person is dead? That's what he's saying. And that's why this is far more offensive than a woman getting the gift of a Peloton because he's saying, you're far worse than you could ever imagine. And not everyone will accept that. Not everyone thinks that. We think we're all right. And so the message of Christmas, the good, life-transforming, world-shaking news that has set nations into existence, the, that, that news was given first to who? And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. In our context, house church shepherds are good people. We love them. We admire them. We honor them. But shepherds in those days were not like that. They were on the totem pole of morality in society. They were right there with tax collectors right above lepers. Lepers. Why? Here's the interesting thing. Shepherds in Bethlehem, these particular shepherds, their number one role, their number one job was to take care of the sheep who would be given for the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. In order for that to happen, these sheep had to be perfect and without blemish. That meant 24-7. They're watching over their flocks. That's why it says in verse 8, now there are shepherds working out in the fields. No, that's not what it says. Now, there were shepherds tending their sheep out in the fields. No, that's not what it says either. It says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields, 
Who lives in the fields? Shepherds do. <laughs> shepherds. Shepherds who, in a, in a court of law, if a shepherd saw someone steal something or kill somebody, uh, and it was, they're the only witnesses there, their eyewitness testimony would not be valid in a court of law. Because morally, they were unscrupulous. They were known as thieves and lawyers. No one listened to what the shepherds had to say. Because shepherds spent all of their time with sheep. They spent none of their time with people. So they didn't know how to interact with others socially. If they were to go to school, which they wouldn't do, maybe they homeschooled themselves amongst themselves, but then when they got the report card, interacts well with others would be an F. That's them. Socially awkward, morally unacceptable, spiritually. Uh, just because they're always with sheep, they could never wash, never go to the temple, had no, uh, they were ceremonially unclean at all times. If there was ever a group of people who knew that they were bad? It's shepherds. And maybe that's why the first recipients of the message were people who already knew that they were bad. And what God is saying is, you are bad, but <laughs> you're actually worse than you can imagine. You're dead in your sins and in the folly and in the error of your way. That's who you are. And until and unless we understand that, because sometimes people say around Christmas, this is what Tim Keller in his book, The Hidden Christmas, says. He says, sometimes we think, here's the message of Christmas. Glad tidings, good cheer to everybody. Hey, uh, our, our, our world is dark, our world stinks, but if we work harder, we can do it. We can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Here's what he, Christmas is saying. No, 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 no. You're right. It's a dark world, but it's far darker than you think, and so is your heart. Because unless we get this, we will never be transformed by the gift of Christmas. Here's why. Here's what John Calvin says. If you think, I'm, you know what, I'm pretty bad, uh, but I'm also pretty good. I'm maybe like on a scale of in percentile in, in morality. Um, there's some, I see some really shady people, so I think I'm about 95 percentile. I might need a little bit of help in order to make it into heaven. He's saying if that's your understanding of salvation and morality, not that you are dead, but that you're pretty alive, I just need a little bit of help, a kick in the pants to get me in the door. If you think you're a, a, a little sinner, then you're going to see Jesus as a little savior. And your heart will not be moved in wonder and awe. You, you ever wonder why, like, people who spent time in jail or people who were strung out on, on crack or people who, who, who were had just a, a difficult life, or people who were uh, in, in gangs, whatever it is, and they come to faith in Jesus, why is it that their lives flip so radically and then like everything is different and, and they just can't be, they can't stop talking about Jesus? Can I tell you why? Because if you, if those people see themselves as a huge sinner, and when they see themselves as a huge sinner, then Jesus will be to them a huge savior, and the message and the wonder of the gospel will blow their minds away. But people who think, I'm pretty good, I just need a little bit of help, if you think you're a little sinner, then Jesus will just be a little savior and the message of Christmas and the good news will not wow you and cause you to lay down your life in joyful witness and go amongst the nations and go to the world and tell them about Jesus. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a little sinner in need of a little savior? My parents are Christians. My grandparents are Christians. They raised me in church. I went to every VBS. I'm pretty good. I just need a little bit of help then Jesus is always going to be a little savior to you. But the message of Christmas is that you're far worse than you could ever imagine.
And that's where the message of Christmas begins. I send you to the town of David a Savior. But thankfully, with the bad news, there comes the good news in the message of the gift. Because the second thing that Christmas says, Christmas says, you are far more loved than you could ever dream. You are far more loved than you could ever dream. Man, we're, <laughs> there's, no, there's no place like Orlando when it comes to dreamers, right? You dream. If, if, okay, so here you are. You're dead. Okay, You and I are dead. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. We're enemies of God by nature, objects of wrath. We don't stand a chance. If you could dream up in your mind, okay, I've got, there's a perfectly holy God. He's completely separate from the world, from people who are sinful, and here I am. Okay, you think about that. If you could dream up a dream scenario for how you might be able to relate to that God, what would your dream scenario look like? Can I ask, what would that dream scenario, if you could just in your mind, craziest, and think about this, God, the creator of heaven and earth, that means there are, at, at, at the most accurate count, the lowest at minimum, 200 billion, okay, with a B, 200 billion, can you, how long would it take you to count to 200 billion, but there are 200 billion at least galaxies in the known world that, that we know of, that we can see with a telescope, the best telescopes, 200 billion galaxies. And some are saying that, that's at the bare minimum. Now, there's a galaxy that I don't know the name of, but it's a bunch of letters and numbers. It's like five letters and numbers. The largest galaxy that anyone knows, and from the core, it, is, it would take... Um, 200 million light years to get to, where is it supposed to get? To the sun, right? So that, what that means is at the, if, if light, right, light, the fastest thing in the world, right, faster than flash, if light were to go to the sun, it would take 200 million years to get there. That's what a light year is, right? I might be wrong, but I, that's what I think it is. From the core to the 200 million years. And that's just one of at least 200 billion, I'm sorry, two, yeah, 200 billion galaxies. And here's one galaxy. It's not a big galaxy. It's not a, uh, it's not a great galaxy, but just a little galaxy called the Milky Way galaxy, and that's where we live, and there's like nine planets or eight planets now. That one isn't considered a planet anymore, but there's eight planets, and one of them is Earth, right? Earth is this little planet, and in this little planet, there's like a bunch of continents, seven of them, and then there's a bunch of countries, and we live in this one called North America, in this country called the United States of America, and out of 50 of those, there's this Florida, and then out of Florida and all the cities, there's this one like Winter Garden, which looks big here, but it's like a microscopic dot on the massive, just the sheer expanse of the world. Okay, so 200 billion galaxies everywhere, one little galaxy called the Milky Way, and, and, and in that Milky Way galaxy, all that stuff, and then there's, there's you, who are objects of the wrath of God. If you could dream up in your craziest dream, what would my relationship with this God look like? What would you say? If you could be as audacious as you could be, what would you say? Say, maybe like the creator, if he saw me, I'd be happy with that. Like if he could just see, like I'm sure there's like, oh my goodness, all this stuff, this, if he could just see me, 
I'd be cool with that. Maybe if he could, I don't know, if he can know me, like he knows my, my name, that would be pretty awesome. But, but get a little bit more brazen here. Well, everything, he's, he's all powerful. He made all of this stuff. Maybe, like, if some of that stuff, like, if I ask him for something, he might give it to me. Like, but it would be even cooler if I could take a step further and, and he would actually, like, care about me. That he would like me. That he would love me. That I could dare call him my My father. In your wildest dreams, could you ever imagine something like that? But the message of Christmas is that you are far more loved than you could ever dare to dream. See, look at this. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus. It doesn't say Luke chapter 2, verse 1, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's not what he said. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. It doesn't say, once upon a time, in a place that shall remain unnamed. When Luke is writing, he's not trying to say, hey, this is a fable, this is folklore, this is a fairy tale, this is fiction. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, this is fact. In fact, Caesar Augustus, if there's no Caesar Augustus, then there's no Jesus. If there's no Quirinius, governor of Syria, then there's no Jesus. If there's none of these things, there's no Christmas. He's saying in real time, in real space, who breathed the breath that you live, if you were to go there to those places you could see. In fact, some of us, Olivia and I went there this summer. We went to Bethlehem and we saw this place in real space time in real space a baby was born as the incarnation of the love of God a message that came through a gift that says you're far worse than you ever dared to imagine but God loves you more than you could ever dare to dream and that's why he sent his son can you imagine God separated from all of the junk of this life but he comes into our world in order to do the one thing that he could not do in heaven that he could do on earth what is that it's to die What kind of a God would do that for us objects of wrath? That is crazy. But think for a moment if it were not true. If it said once upon a time there was a census taken in some land or long ago in the Middle East far, far uh, wherever it was. This, this man kind of envisions, he's a pastor, and he kind of, he, he said he dreamed this. I don't know if it was a, like a literal sleeping dream or like an I have a dream, kind of a dream in his wakeful state. But he had a dream that Jesus had not come on Christmas Day. And so it's like what C.S. Lewis says in, in one, of his, uh, one of his books. He says, I think he said the land of Narnia was like, it was always winter and never Christmas. Can someone fact check that? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it was always winter, but never Christmas. Winter is, it's cold, it's dark. The longest nights, the shortest days, but at least we have Christmas. He said, Narnia, it's always dark, it's always cold, it's always wet, it's always dank, but there's never Christmas. 
that he woke up on a morning like that, December 25th, and he woke up and he went out, and there was no Christmas tree, no lights, no bells, no holly, no wreath. Opened the door. There was no church down the road that used to be there, no Christmas caroler singing. There's no lights, nothing, none of that tinsel, any of that stuff was anywhere to be found. He, he went inside and he sat down and, and he pulled out his Bible and he got to it and it, it, it stopped at the book of Malachi. There was no New Testament. There was no hope of Jesus, nothing like that. He said, my goodness, what is going on here? And then he got a knock on the door. It was a little boy from next door. He said, my mom is dying. Come quickly. We need you to, we need you to come. So he said, okay, I'll bring words of comfort. He ran over there and he brought his Bible and he opened up to the New Testament. There was nothing there. And all he could do is just weep with that mother as he knew that she was going to die. And so two days later, he stood in front of the casket and could offer no words of hope because Jesus had not come. Darkness, despair, depression ruled if Jesus had not come. But Luke says, in those days, you can ask the people, there came a baby named Jesus who had come to be the Savior of the world. And these shepherds, when they get it, right, they realized, holy cow, this is good. If this didn't really happen, you could get some good advice from it. Yeah, hey, the shady people in lives, the shady shepherds, we should love them also. Right, that's, that's good advice. Hey, you know what? Um, anything can happen. Anything is possible. That's good advice, but there's no good news if Jesus doesn't come. Do you understand? It's the difference between you can learn lessons from fables and fairy tales, but you cannot have good news unless it actually happened. And so Jesus enters into our world, and these shepherds for the first time realize, who is this, who's this invitation for? This will be good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For all the people. And then it says, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. Why is he born to us? Well, because this is great joy for all people, but the invitation is a personal one for each of us. What will you do with this gift of Christmas? Because, you see, it, it's crazy. When the shepherds get this news, they go and they tell everybody. And no one ever listened to the shepherds, right? No one ever listened to shepherds. They're like, those smelly shepherds, you don't even know what you're talking about. We don't understand what you're saying. It's, it would later say that when the shepherds said this, um, and they talked about it. It says, when they spread the word, people were amazed. In the kingdom that Jesus came to bring, the last shall be first, because grace flows downhill to those who know they need it the most. And when he does, when Jesus comes, everything changes, right? Everything changes. Has your life been changed by Jesus? Can I tell you something? I, I, I read this somewhere the other day. I forget who said it. But he said, if, if you've met Jesus and your life has not been changed, you've met the wrong Jesus. If you've met Jesus and your life hasn't been changed, you met the wrong one. A few weeks ago when my parents were in town, um, Olivia and me, my, my parents were eating dinner and my mom was just, she's just sharing. I, I don't know why she was sharing. She just wanted to, she, she's gotten this like desire to share her story of how God had changed her life. And uh, when she got married to my dad, uh, my dad dragged her to church. She wasn't, she wasn't a believer. 
And um, she would go, and she said, I, I can't believe any of this stuff that I read in the Bible. She would challenge in her heart everything that the, the pastor was saying. None of it made any sense to her. But even in the midst of that rebellion, God was working in her heart. There were miracles that were wrought in our family's life that it, it was the work of God to prepare her for what he was doing. And this one night, um, one weekend, there was what's called a revival meeting at, at her church in Virginia back 40 years ago. And there was a, a, a pastor from Queens, New York, who was coming down to preach. And my dad had gone fishing with some of his friends that weekend. And so my mom just, she was home alone, and she said she had this, like, this like burning desire to go to those meetings and to worship God or to, to check out God. So she went and she, she said, for whatever reason, I sat all the way in the front and I just kept crying throughout the entire worship service. That next morning, there was an early morning service where that, that pastor was preaching again. And so when she got there, it's just the same thing. She just, started, she just started crying and all of a sudden she said, I knew I knew that what I had been hearing is true, and everything changed that morning. Said all of a sudden, what she read, what she could not believe, like it was just, just burning within her soul, and she said, I could not not believe these things were true. And just God was working, and she said when she walked out of the sanctuary uh, at that, that, that morning, she said, I knew everything was different. Said the grass was so much greener than it had ever been. The sky was so much bluer than it had ever been, and everything was different in my life. To real people, in a real place, God sent the Savior in real time to be the Savior of the world, and once they got it, their lives could never be the same. He's doing that today, too. You hear that all the time. We hear that all the time in house churches. We hear that every time when people come up here and they testify to the work of God. He's still doing these things. It's good news of great joy for all the people, but the invitation comes to each of us because we need to choose whether we're going to believe this and accept this gift or not. Why is this? What does this have to do with his love? What is that? Here's why. You know the cost and the proof of the love of God for his people when you think about the price that was paid in order for that gift to be given to us. What was the cost? Against the dark backdrop of the cradle, you see the shadow of the cross 33 years later. Because he came for one reason and one reason only, we are the reason that he gave his life. We are the reason that he suffered and died to a world that was lost beyond measure. He gave all he could give to show us the reason to live. That's why he came. Well, could it? Why did, he didn't have to do that. I mean, it, it, he did it. He can't change it. But why couldn't Jesus just wait, stand up on a mountain and wave his hands or, or snap his fingers and say, everyone, your sins are forgiven. You have hope. Believe in me. Why didn't he just do it? Why do you have to die? Why do you have to get marred, just crushed like that? Why did, the, why did he have to be destroyed in the way that he was? Let me ask you a question. If someone stood on a mountaintop and said, your sins are forgiven, would you have believed him? Would you have followed him? Would you have given your life to him? Would you have said all of my life and nothing less than all that I am for the man who snapped his fingers and said, you're forgiven? 
Because the only way that you know love is if someone shows love to you. How do we know that God loves, that he cares? We see it through the cross of Christ. Because here's the reality. You, you and I had no say, Andy Stanley says this, we had no say in when we were born. Okay, you didn't say, yeah, you know what, um, mom, dad, I'd like for you guys to conceive me so I could be born in 1997. You didn't say that. You were born without, had nothing to do with you, and you will, for most of us, we will, we will go the, to, to our grave, has nothing to do with when we plan it or how we plan it. What does that mean? Here's what it means, that there is God who is the author of life. And all throughout life, what do we do to the one who gave us life and the one who will one day take life from us? Here's what we do. There are moments where we're, we're, we're awesome and we love God and we worship him, but then there are times where we say, God, where are you? God, what have you done for me lately? God, why aren't you showing up in my life? God, why does my life stink so bad? God, why didn't you give me these things? We shake our fist at God. If you were God, the maker of all that stuff, and he made you and he loved you and he gave his son for you, and you shook your fist, and someone shook their fist at you, what would you do? Here's what I do. I, man, shoot. <laughs> I would punt them across the galaxy, shoot. I would suck the breath of life out of them. Why are we still here? Because what God should have done to me and what he should have done to you, he did to his son on the cross. The Christ was crucified. The Messiah was murdered. Our Savior was slaughtered like a lamb on a tree so that you and I would know that there's a God who loves us. Even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it, he's shown his love and he's still working. The question is, will you believe that? See, at the end of that Peloton commercial, after a year of doing that, the lady sits back on her chair and she's like, I never knew how much this would change my life. (laughs) And if you accept the gift of Christmas, you have no idea how much he will change your life if you put your trust in him. Let's pray together. As we pray together, um, I want to encourage you. um, I want to give an invitation uh, just as wherever you are in your heart, as we all close our eyes to pray. If you have already accepted the gift of Jesus, I just want you to pray, thanking God for for, for his love and asking that he would continue to make you more like Jesus. But I want to do this also for, and give this invitation, if there's anyone in here, I think there's some of us in here who have not opened the gift of Jesus, have not received the gift of Jesus into our lives. The Bible says here's what you need to understand is that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And God sent his Savior, Jesus Christ, to live the life you and I failed to live and died the death that we should have died. And when we put our trust in him and say, you take my place and I'll take yours, he is treated as we are and we are treated as he should be, as a son and daughter of the king of kings. In about 30 seconds, I just want to give an invitation for anybody who wants to put their trust in Jesus to receive that gift. All I'm going to do is just ask you from where you are with everyone's eyes closed in, in 30 seconds, I'll just say, hey, why don't you just raise your hand so that I can see you and I can pray for you in my heart and so we can talk afterwards or 
sit down over coffee to explain a little bit further what this gift of love is. But why don't we do this for the next uh, 30 seconds? Can we just pray and respond to God right now? God, I need you. Thank you for loving me. Lord, I need more of you. Show me how deeply I needed a Savior and how deeply I'm loved by you. Lord, help me to share this gift of love with others. Let's pray together. Um, You don't need to pray out loud and you don't need to pray quietly. You can pray in your heart, but what I'll ask you, just pray sincerely, honestly. God doesn't want you to come any other way than the way that you are right now. And then as we pray like that in our hearts or out loud for about 30 seconds, in half a minute, I'm just going to give this invitation. And if what I said um, describes you, then when the invitation is given, you just raise your hand from where you are. So let's pray for half a minute, praying that we would really uh, worship and love God and understand the gift that's seen through Christmas. Let's pray together for a few moments. Just talk to God. to pray. Um, Just keep our eyes closed and and pray. And if you're done praying, just uh, thank God. But I want to give this invitation here. This is what it says again in Luke chapter 2, verse 10. It says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. In other words, though the message is universal for all the people, it's personal. He says, I bring you this news and through the timeless word of God, God, his Holy Spirit speaks into our midst. And so if there's any of us in here who feel like, yeah, I want Jesus, I want to open the gift of Jesus in my life. I, maybe I've heard of him, but I haven't opened him up because if I have, man, my life would be different, would be changed. With our eyes closed as we just continue to pray and give thanks to God. If that's you in here, I just, I want, I need Jesus in my life. I want to put my trust in him today so that he could could be everything that he wants to be in my life. If that's you, can I just ask you from where you are, just raise your hand. I'm not going to make you do anything or crazy or dance or sing or anything like that. But it's just, yeah, I need Jesus in my life. Just raise your hand from where you are. Praise God. Thank you. some folks who have responded that they want to put their trust in this Jesus. I need Jesus in my life. For the next 10 seconds, you can think about it. And then um, from where you are, you can just go ahead and raise your hand. For the rest of us, if you've already made that decision, just pray for people who need the Lord in their lives. anyone else, you can go ahead and and raise your hand and uh, after that I'm just going to pray on our behalf just ask you 
This prayer that I pray right now, I just want to ask that you would pray this in your own heart and make this prayer your own. Father in heaven, I thank you that you see me. Out of billions and billions, you see me. Jesus said that not a hair falls from my head without you knowing because you are so intimately involved in the affairs of my life. Sometimes that scares me because I've messed up and I've sinned against you, against others. I ask that you would forgive me for my sins. I believe that you have because you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. Come into my life, save me, and be my master. Change me so that my life would reflect your goodness to the world around me. I love you because you've loved me first. And so, Father, as we pray that prayer together and some pray that prayer, with just an honest faith for the first time, we pray that your spirit would envelop your people and that you would enter in and you would do a work that no human could ever do in us, a work of change and transformation that we so desperately desire. Now, we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make ourselves any better than we are. But Lord, when you enter in, you change us from the inside out. So Lord, may we as a church and we as individuals live and be the kind of people that you've called us to be for your glory, for our joy, and for the blessing of many people in this world. And we thank you so much. We commit our hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray.